On The Regenerative Journey, our goal is to nurture and facilitate the lives and journeys of all our followers, which is why we've teamed up with resource consulting service, RCS, Australia's leading provider of education and advisory services in regenerative agriculture. RCS trains and consults across the ag sector, from individuals and families, through to corporates and even government, empowering people to grow productive and profitable businesses in diverse and, importantly, healthy landscapes. They understand that the future of healthy families, resilient communities and regenerative farming lies in holistic education. Over the last 15 years, I've played an integral role in my own regenerative journey. And I have a lot to thank RCS for, and I'm one of 7,500 others who have attended their farming and grazing for profit course. I don't know where I'd actually be, uh, and I certainly wouldn't be this far down my own regenerative journey if I hadn't completed a significant amount of training with the RCS team. I can't recommend more highly uh, RCS to anyone looking to start their regenerative journey in a supportive and proven environment. Terry, Makoska and your team, you absolutely rock. And we're also absolutely stoked to be collaborating with them now. For my listeners only, we're offering a 10% discount on all farming and grazing for profit schools and grazing clinics in Australia this year. If you add this to the early bird rate of a seven-day school, you could get a whopping $1,000 off standard price simply add the code charlie rcs that's charlie rcs that's one word at the checkout to get your concession how awesome is that now head to the show notes to find out more actually i I can choose and i will choose and i don't want to tell stories that are not contributing to the web of life that are not um elevating humanity um um, i'm not going to i'm not going to tell degenerative stories anymore i want to find regenerative stories That was Nat Kelly, and you're listening to The Regenerative Journey. From wherever we are, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia, recognising their continuing connection to this land, its waterways, the stars in the skies since time immemorial. We pay our respects to the elders, knowledge holders, and to all the generations of First Nations peoples who have nurtured their unceded sovereign lands for over 80,000 years and continue to do so today. G'day, I'm your host Charlie Arnott, an 8th generational Australian regenerative farmer and in this podcast series I'll be diving deep and exploring my guests' unique perspectives on the world so you can apply their experience and knowledge to cultivate your own transition to a more regenerative way of life. Welcome to The Regenerative Journey with your host Charlie Arnott. G'day, welcome back to the second episode of Season 5 of The Regenerative Journey. Uh, I trust you enjoyed the previous episode, my opener for the season, as I usually do. And as Reese says, it was an opportunity to, um, <laughs> what's he say, Ro- Ro- Roma, rant out my ass. And this actually is going to be a similar dose. Uh, not so much to the extent, uh, only a couple of minutes, but it's an opportunity for me to just uh, get a bit contemporary each week with what's going down in the world as well as introducing the guest for each of these episodes. So look, I just want to welcome you all back. Um, we have workshops coming up in uh, various parts of the country in the um, in, in, in what's left of uh, autumn uh, and through winter and into a spring as well. Um, as, we, as I speak, well, as you listen, I should say, uh, we're completing day two if you're doing it on the day of launch of this episode. Um, no, that's not true. This is a week after. So we would have just, um, the week before you're listening to this, uh, Burua, 
uh, introduction of biodynamics course. So what we're doing is uh, in the beginning of March, uh, sorry, May, 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 we are going to be down in South Australia, uh, second and third of May down there at um, Kaleski. The Kaleski family have um, been wonderful, um, dropped in to visit them last year when we were down there, and they are magnificent and they use biodynamics in the production uh, of their grapes and they do such a wonderful job down there. So we're going to be there with them on the 2nd, 3rd of May and then later that same week, the 5th and 6th of May, back down there, Gem Tree, in the uh, McLaren Vale. The uh, Koleski uh, workshop is in Barossa, for any of you um, people who aren't wine buffs. Um, that is where they are posi- positioned and we can't wait to get down there to Barossa again. And Gem Tree in the McLaren Vale, we had a lovely two days down there last year, about similar time of the year. And what lovely people Mike and Melissa are. Um, so very excited about those two. We're also um, going to be uh, jumping into um, some dates in June and July uh, in Queensland, most likely. We're looking to get to Armadale as well, potentially in, ooh, it might be early May. It might be May sometime. Not before it gets too dark. Too dark. I'm going crazy. It gets too cold. I did four years uh, of university at Armadale and I know just how bitter it gets in winter. So we're going to try and avoid that and have that one, that workshop, um, prior to it all just freezing up there at Armadale. What a lovely place it is, though. Um, can't wait to get back down there. So what are we um, – oh, so Queensland, we could be up at um, up north in Claremont or Emerald um, and certainly hopefully back at, uh, back near Kinkin, the, the Noosa hinterland with the braes. Um, we could be in the scenic rim of Queensland down there. Again, southeast of Queensland, there's so many opportunities to put workshops on and we are really excited to get them underway. The other thing I want to just touch on when at the, at the time, the day of recording this, it's – Probably day, maybe day five or six or four, I can't remember really, um, of the massive floods that, that hit southeast Queensland. I'm currently in the northern rivers of New South Wales at the farm at Byron Bay. So if you hear any tractors going past and trucks and things, that's, uh, uh, that's why. Um, and I'm saying on again, got to cut that out, mate. Uh, it is complete scene of devastation up here. I don't know that the, the news is necessarily giving the full picture, I'm not sure why not, um, but I spent I spent a day on a, on a dinghy with a couple of mates on, on a couple of days ago down at Woodburn, which is just off the highway um, and near Ballina on the Richmond River, and the river is usually about, you know, oh, wouldn't be, be 50, 60 metres wide, I'm, I'm thinking, wouldn't be more than 100 there, I don't think. It is, I don't know, 10 kilometres wide plus, 15 kilometres wide at the moment. Um, you know, yeah, it's, it's horrible. Dead, dead animals floating around. People completely, uh, you know, flooded out of their homes. We spent the day ferrying people back from the public school, which is the only place on in the whole of the town of Woodburn that's above, uh, above the waterline. Cars under, houses under. Uh, we actually putted over from where we, we, um, we launched the boat we drove over the highway. Uh, the highway would have been about five, six, seven metres below us um, across the highway. So I don't know when that's going to be open. Hopefully by the time you hear this, it will be open and the traffic and the um, the food and the fuel and all those things that we, um, uh, you know, becoming so reliant on 
can start flowing again and those people can get back to their homes and start the massive, massive clean-up job. There are a number of um, GoFundMe pages um, out there. Have a Google of those if you want to help. Um, it's, it, I, I don't suspect that, you know, even a couple of, a couple of weeks past when um, uh, this has all happened, when you're hearing this, uh, the, the, the needs won't be um, any less. But massive clean-ups up here and just a, just a point with that is, you know, what it highlighted to me was a massive... You know, the reliance on the, you know, the, the current food system, on carting food long distances, you know, put the, even the fuel aside, that's a whole other bag, but um, not a hell of a lot we can do about that right now. But the food system, you know, the localised food systems in this sort of situation come into their own. They should come into their own at any time of the year, you know, with or without natural disasters, but it really highlighted the fragility of the food system when there's no food on the, sh- on the shelves of any... any um, uh, any supermarket, and the only shops that have food on their shelves at the moment are those smaller organic you know, grocery stores who have built relationships with the local producers around here uh, who are still able to actually get food to them and put it on the shelves and feed people. Um, it's a real, you know, this disaster has really shone a light on, on you know, how many variables there are in the system and that how it is so, it is so fragile. Uh, literally there's no food on the shelves. Uh, unless you know a farmer and you can go direct or you know those shops and you've been supporting those shops who go directly to farmers with that one degree of sort of separation there. Another, you know, pretty startling and horrendous example of why getting to know your farmer, having a relationship with them, securing your food system, your your you know, your own food sort of um, supply is a really smart thing. And, you know, some people would argue, well, it's a one-in-a-hundred-year flight. It is... It is the worst ever, mind you, uh, and some would say, "Well, it's not going to happen again." And you know, why well, we should you change everything just because of that? Um, this freak event. Well, you know, who's to say these freak events aren't going to happen more more often? And isn't it just a good thing that we don't grow food in the northern rivers of New South Wales, drive it up to Brisbane markets, the food markets there? Excuse me, <coughs> and then cart it all the way, get gets sold and passed on. And then it gets it, it's it's trucked all the way back down to Byron Bay. It's absolutely nuts. It reminds me of the story of I think it was fish. I, I, I'm going to get all the countries and, the, and and so on wrong, but there was you know fish was caught somewhere in one country on the globe, carted off to somewhere to be basically filleted and processed, and then carted somewhere else to be eaten. I mean, it's just absolutely ludicrous. That's a massive global sort of example of it. But even in this smaller you know, Northern Rivers, New South Wales area. It is just, um, it's yeah, it's it's there's there's a lot of work needs to be done, I think, and there's some individuals and organisations looking to do that, and there is no greater reason to start working on that again uh, post this um, this disaster up here. That's probably enough from me. You're going to be listening to the interview I did with Nat Kelly. Um, she's a Peruvian, Australian-born Peruvian. Um, uh, lady, woman, girl. I can't. I'm, I'm never really sure quite how to um, what the politically correct way to sort of refer to ladies is. I think some people think it's weird when I call them ladies. Um, but anyway, or female. I, I don't know. I don't even want to go there and all that sort of stuff. But she's fantastic. Um, she. I caught up with her at Burua at Hanamino. She came down. She she came down twice actually. Once to sort of suss. Sussed us out. She was passing through, and then she made the big effort to come down, drive back from Sydney there in, and back in the day to do an interview um, at Hanamino, and it was absolutely wonderful. And I tell you what, what a she's got an incredible grasp of 
of the environmental movement, the regenerative farming movement, food, you know, natural therapies, health, and it's so refreshing being an actress. Uh, I'm sure there's many actresses who just don't, you know, take interest in it, and that's fine, but there's probably a lot that pretend they do and they're really not probably that um, cognizant or really genuinely uh, interested in it. But there's no doubt in my mind, and there won't be in yours, and a big shout-out to Nat's mum and grandmother, um, Rosa and Rafaela, who, who uh, Rosa drove down all the way from Sydney to Burrawa some four hours. What a committed mum and grandmother. And I can't tell you what, what a wonderful honour it was to meet them as well. So big shout-out to Rosa and uh, Rafaela for accompanying Nat down here to Burrawa. I hope you enjoy this opener session, episode of Season 5 of The Regenerative Journey as much as I did with Nat Kelly. Nat, Nat Kelly, we're on. We're on. We did it. We did it. We finally made it after. Well, we didn't have any false starts, did we? I'm just, I'm just grateful that that you stayed in the country a couple, <laughs> couple I, of days. I did, and I think subconsciously I stayed because I knew that this was an important thing to do and I was really honoured to be invited to be a part of it because I'm such a big fan. <laughs> okay, Nat, thank you. That's um, Thank you. <laughs> That's really, the, thank that's you. The for, end of the interview. Thank you for doing what you're doing. Um, you know, I arrived in Australia a few weeks ago, and I just felt a bit of a bummer that I just where I'm like, where's the regenerative agriculture community? And then I found you. So, well, I'm so pl- pleased, and there's not I mean, there's so many of us out there, um, and we can talk about that. And there's <clears throat> you've been here a couple of hours today, and we've had a lovely time, which we'll get to. Um, it's such a it's such a big conversation, which we, we, we'll, we'll touch on a bit and you're going to so come back here at some point. Talking about here, now, what I generally do when I start my interviews with my guests. What's that noise? Oh, it's a hedge trimmer. It's <laughs> Greg. It's a oh, very authentic Greg. interview. Isn't it? How do horses? Just try hanging. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Yeah, we're not in some fancy studio. We're we're recording live from the farm. <laughs> this is priceless. Okay. All right. Okay, if any of you are still on on the on the interview, <laughs> and let's start again. We won't start again. We'll just keep on going. We're here now in the loft um, at Hannah Minow, where Mum and Dad stay. And we're positioning ourselves up here on, on purpose because we're looking out to the south across our beautiful dam, um, across Wiradjuri country in the Boro area. And I generally start my interviews, well, you generally interview people in their own home, hmm. their own garden or their own property kind of thing. So um, it's unusual you're here, but love it you are. So this question still applies but in a different context, what does it mean for you to be sitting here looking out at that country? Which is unfamiliar to you, but kind of, I guess, given what I know about you, I'm sure means something. It means hope for me, to be honest. Um, I spent the last two weeks in an unnamed place in Australia. I won't go there. But um, my mum had rented a little farm stay somewhere for us to spend Christmas and get away from all the craziness in the city. And 
what she didn't know was that she booked a farm stay in smack bang in the middle of um, soil erosion in Australia. And I got to see the real effects that modern agriculture is having on our landscape. And I've been feeling pretty sad. And so when you invited me to stop by and see this farm, my whole family, after just spending two weeks in the other place, as soon as we got on your property, it was like there was this collective, oh, because we could feel that the land here is alive and, 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 and being nurtured in a, in a way that is wise, that is loving. Um, and you can feel that energy here. And so when I look around at this lush green landscape, knowing that the surrounding landscape is pretty, is pretty dry and pretty eroded, I feel hope that this is a possibility for agriculture in Australia. And you, the, the way that you con- con- contacted me, connected a couple of weeks ago, I posted um, something. I can't remember what it was. No? It was oh, a, a picture cow, of cows. That's right. Yes, with lush green that's right. Grass, and I asked you because I had never seen. I had I was looking at all these cows on all this dry, eroded land, mm-hmm. and I've been, you know, uh, rereading Bruce Pascoe's Dark Emu while here, and I I looked at your picture and I was like, wait a second. I thought ruminant animals were bad. How do you get your land to look like that in Australia? Obviously. We know that ruminant animals can be a beneficial presence to um, the land in other places, but I thought here in Australia it didn't work with the soil. And you sent me a lovely voice note telling me, um, directing me to some of your podcasts which explain how we can reintegrate Mm. um, these creatures into the landscape in a way that's good for the soil. And so, so I, I guess what I was um, really pleased that you'd reached out to do that, and it, it was a, a really, it felt like a really genuine inquiry because I, some people go, "Oh, that that doesn't work," and they're not native, and we shouldn't have them. So it was it was bu- beautiful to have a non-farmer, <laughs> generally inquisitive and curious about how that 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 sort of um, how animals, how ruminants in Australia and also in, in the US, because that's kind of. And Africa is kind of the the home of the ruminants and the the grasslands and the ecosystems that were created, and that we are essentially trying to mimic here. Mm. So it was a wonderful comment, and it was obviously it was the, the catalyst for then uh, um, connecting, and then bingo, you're here, which is wonderful, and I'm so glad you are. Um, so in some ways, thank you, COVID, for kind of messing with your plans. <laughs> <laughs> so that's one of the good things that's come out of it. Um, Nat, I want to um, take you back to as far as you want to go. Your, your life, your regenerative journey, where, where, where did it all begin? I mean, even before your regenerative journey began, where, you were, where were you born? Okay. Um, and, where, and, where, and sort of what was the, what happened, that, what was, you know, connection to country there at all? I'll take it back uh, about 10,000 years, if that's okay. Totally. <laughs> Do you that's have that a, much no, that's time? A great, that's a great place to start. No, seriously, it's, great, it's awesome. Because my ancestors mm. in Peru, mm. um, recently we are called Quechua, we were the Incas, and before that we were many other cultures. But we uh, were master regenerative agriculturalists. 
um, creating biodiversity, creating a lot of the diverse seeds and crops that we know today, corn, potatoes. Um, they all come from Peru on many different varieties, not just the three kinds that we buy in the supermarket today. And uh, I come from a long line of agriculturalists and shepherds and people living in harmony with the with with the ecosystem um and like a lot of people that connection to the land was severed through um through colonization but then also through migration you know i was born in peru but then um my family had to move from the rural part of peru where we're from because of poverty because farmers aren't valued and the new trade agreements meant that, you know, these subsistence farmers were barely subsisting anymore. And if they w- didn't want to grow the things that were being sold on the world market, like coffee and cotton, etc. So um, there's that part of it. My mom immigrated to Lima. I was born there. And, um, you know, she she was a single mom and she didn't want me to be raised in a in a majority Catholic country with that kind of cloud hanging over my head of illegitimacy Mm. i'll just be honest and so she moved she moved me to australia and my dad not being in my life was the best gift he ever gave me because moving here gave me provided me with so many opportunities with such a different worldview than if i had stayed in peru and i was raised here in the lower north shore um and like all australians felt a deep connection to nature but to be honest, never really thought about the soil, never really imagined that one day my dream would be to live on a farm. I was a city girl. Um, But one thing I'm really grateful that my mom did keep alive in our family was our pride at our indigenous culture. So even though we were this little like you know, maybe not so typical, but like lower North Shore family. At my home, we would still sing and listen to Peruvian music. And my mom, <laughs> for our, I'll put this picture up on the page for you to put mm. in the in the show notes. You know, when you go <laughs> get awesome. those glamour photos when yeah, you're young oh, yeah. and you go take your kids. So my mom would dress me up in the full traditional Peruvian gear to go get my those glamour photos taken. And now That's I. That's cool that she even had some. <laughs> she had in them the- in our size. <laughs> she had the children's <laughs> version sent over. And at the time, I was like, "Mom, this is so embarrassing. The mm. other kids get to go wear matching jeans and jackets and wearing this like full traditional garb. What? Imagine what the the glamour photographer at, at Chatswood Mall probably thought. But now, when I look back at those photos, I'm like, "Oh my god." From that such a young age, my mom always taught me to be proud of my indigenous heritage, even though I was raised literally on the opposite side of the world. And that had mm, that kind of seed that she planted really bloomed later in my life when I went back to South America. And I was keen to see my indigenous family. I was like, I can't wait to see Machu Picchu. I can't wait to... To, to be back with my people, my mom proudly would tell me the Incas built more roads than the Romans. Really? You know, at the height of the empire, they were feeding 10 million people all through regenerative agriculture, not a drop of glyphosate or nitrogen to, to answer. When, when people always ask about scaling regenerative agriculture, I'm like, the Incas did it. Mm. It's just about the kind of care and love and attention you have for the soil. So when I went back to South America and I saw... My, my, my people living in poverty, in shame about their indigenous heritage, wanting to be non-indigenous, 
Um, you know, I saw these languages disappearing, these ways of life being <laughs> just moved out by the monoculture of globalization and colonialism. And I felt even though I was young, I was only 18 when I went back to Peru for the first time, I was like, something's not right here, systemically. What, what age were you? Just to get 18. 18, okay. When I first went back. Really? So I'm culturally very Australian. Yeah. But, you know, like I said, the, those, those bloodlines in me run really strong. And, um, and I said, I have to go back to Australia because I'm not okay with this poverty. I'm not okay with these oppressive systems, keeping indigenous people, um, in poverty, beggars in their own land, you know, displaced, dispossessed. I, I, and I said, and just volunteering is not enough. And I had the education. This is why my mum moved me to Australia. I have the resources, the opportunities, and the education to make a difference on a grander scale. So I went back and I started my degree in social science and policy at the University, University of New South Wales. However, because um, my life and no one, my life, particularly my life, is not very linear. <laughs> I always get to things in a meandering way, like a river. <laughs> that's the I, best way. That's the best that's way. The best I took a little 15-year detour mm. from that dream mm. <laughs> as an actress, yeah. which was this other um, burning desire I had within me to tell stories. And, um, and look, that's a whole other podcast that I won't do a deep dive into, but I will say um, I moved to America with the dream of telling the stories that I'm on the verge of telling now. Like it's taken a while. Mm. Like I had to do a few silly movies about car racing and stuff, stuff that didn't mean anything to me <laughs> before I got here. You know, like you don't get to choose as an actress, but now I'm in a, a part of of my career where I'm like, actually I, I can choose and I will choose. And I don't want to tell stories that are not contributing to the web of life that are not um, elevating humanity. Um, um, I'm not going to. I'm not going to tell degenerative stories anymore. I, I want to find regenerative stories, and so um, and now I'm in this amazing um, time of my life where both my the dreams inside me, the dreams of that 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 part of me that went to university to study social science and policy to change legislation and to and to and to enact change on a on a larger scale and the part of me now that has as an actress has the skills as a storyteller and the platform those two parts are intersecting mm. and i'm just in a really exciting place in my life and um i'm just really grateful really grateful to the web of life as especially my ancestors for dreamy, dreaming me into being in this way. I'm really grateful for all the, all the opportunities and talents that they have given me. And now my question is, please show me how I may use them to be of service. So that's, that's a really beautiful, I'm in a really happy, beautiful place in my life as a result of that. Yeah. Has, has the, t the last two years where I guess work's been challenging and for not just in the acting world, but in, all around the world, but every every industry has that given you pause for reflection, space, time, opportunity. I mean, has that been a good thing, or has it just been a big pain in the ass? Oh, it depends what lens you have on. Mm. <laughs> if you're in that scarcity mindset, I'm like, this has been a really bad two years. Mm. I've only done like one one little movie. Like, I've barely worked, you know. But then on the other hand, I'm like, 
but I've done a soil advocacy training program with Kiss the Ground. You know, I've completely dived into this world of regenerative agriculture, indigenous wisdom. I was invited onto the board of Kiss the Ground and the Fungi Foundation. I'm actively raising money for two organizations that I love and care about. I'm learning how to use my gifts to tell new stories in new ways. And I give thanks that, you know, I haven't booked any of these last auditions that I've been on in the last two years because it wouldn't have given me the time to do this. And I'd be, to be honest, doing telling stories that are not really mine to tell. And that's what I'm learning, to let go of the things that are not mine, to trust that the, the roles that I am supposed to play and the stories that I am supposed to tell will come if I have the patience and the, the will to say no to things that just are not mine, that don't belong to me. In your, in, you know, Hollywood industry, um, in the world of acting, where what have you seen um, that you're happy about now that you have a different lens you're looking through? You know, what other things are happening over there that are a regenerative or sustainable nature? What other organisations, or or is it a bit barren? Are you like going, I'm an uh, explorer here? And, no, this is yeah. this is a very exciting time that we're mm. in, and COVID has actually been, I think a good thing in terms of waking up people's consciousness that we are in a crisis. Um, of, of course, most people think that the main crisis is COVID, but we know that the, the, that this is just preparing us for the larger crisis of, of climate change. And, um, and so I think that the ground now has been prepared as, as a, one of your biodynamic <laughs> potions has been poured on it. So it's a little more fertile for mm. some of these seeds to grow. Mm. And whereas a few years ago, if I had pitched a show, which I'm in the process of doing now around um, the opposite of patriarchy, which isn't matriarchy, it's actually partnership. Partners, a partnership model is what the opposite of patriarchy is. Awesome. Um, and if I had pitched a show about that a few years ago, they would have been laughed out of the room. But now I think people are open to some of these new ideas and they've been... Look, there was that Zac Efron show. I don't know if you saw it down back down to earth or I something. didn't see it, but I heard about it. Yeah, yeah a lot of people liked it. Um, I want to do like the female feminine version. Was, <laughs> it, was it a bit... I didn't see it. So it was, it was a, a bit, bit bro yeah. It was like really, you know, like a bit like very i mean he's a dude he's mm. a bro mm. and but that's well, he's okay he's a, we, we, he's a bra but we need to get the bras on board so yeah, i'm yeah. not i'm not bagging it in, yeah. in australian lingo i'm just saying like great he pioneered the way can we get more shows like that out there i mean it says a lot that fantastic fungi um was the number one downloaded movie of, or documentary sorry on itunes in 2020 and i have to shout out your mm. former guest Pete Windrum mm. and his wife Nina Karnakowski for telling me to watch that because it absolutely changed my life and then it led to me getting on the board of the, or being invited on the board of the Fungi Foundation. So so these are stories that like I said maybe a few years ago people have been would have been like why 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 is everyone raving about this movie about mushrooms and fungi but now people are like actively looking for new solutions and new stories and and fungi are, are, are actually new i mean old technologies mm. that could be potentially new solutions to some of these problems that we're having today it's a really exciting field too isn't it the um the understanding the the the, the science the research on the amazing or well, the fantastic 
how fantastic it is, but it, it's the it's the roadway on which minerals are supplied, communication, um, all sorts of you know chemicals, and it's the the wood wide web. The wood what it is, isn't it? The wood wide the web. The wood wide web. Exactly. <laughs> and I guess we don't. And as farmers, like I, I used to um, spray a lot of fungicide on crops, thinking I'm killing the rust in the wheat because uh, that's the problem I see, as I see it. No idea. Not even thinking about the fact that I was killing a whole lot of this intricate network, which I was, you know, relying on as a farmer to provide and grow my wheat. You know, it's, it was a, it's a, it's a great example of the fungi forgive you. Do they? I hope. Look, <laughs> you've done so much other work for them that they'll let that one go. <laughs> I hope so. I think I hope I hope we have spent more years trying to fix the problem than I spent creating it in the first place. And I'm not going to go back there. So every year that I keep helping them, I guess I'm getting some brownie points back. You absolutely are. And I was just kidding. I think. Um, <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> well, you don't want to get on their bad side. No. They basically control the world. In mm. fact, you know, um, what book was I reading where they were like, you know, maybe at some point they'll decide to revolt and just like just do away with us. Like They're the just watching us. Yeah, so like the no. Triffids? Oh, must, um, the plants. So. Uh-huh became alive there was a comet everyone was blind and a few people who were asleep could the only ones in the world who could see and these triffids uh, these big orchid things would walk around the world and like zap people oh and kill them. yes i've seen the, triffid, yes. the triffids it's, yes yeah. it was a science fiction book totally. i did read I it so. oh it, when them when them what, what what's this version called um mycelium my mad mycelium when the mycelium turn on us <laughs> and they're everywhere and they're listening to everything and yeah. they're so intelligent and, uh, and yeah, we don't pay any attention to them. And they're in our brain. <laughs> and they're in our brain. Mm. They're in our brain and, uh, and they help our brain, you know. I'm mm. so lucky to be on these board meetings with um, Paul Stamets and always getting um, new information from him at the board meetings like, oh, we've just done this study and, and mm. it's looking likely that psilocybin can uh, not just stop uh, Alzheimer's but reverse it. Um, that study has not been published yet, so don't everybody go get excited. <laughs> but I'm just saying the potential, you didn't hear it first. Yeah, yeah, just the potential of this medicine to help us with neurogenesis, to get help up, to help get get our brains right, mm. and and then what? What's the next step? So that then we can be of service again to the fungus, to the fungi, to the mycelium, to the web of life. You know, I really think that's the true purpose, this health and wellness craze that's sweeping the world. I'm like, that's great. But right now it feels like it's just personal and we're missing the link between our health and wellness and the health and wellness of the earth, the collective health and wellness of all the living organisms on the planet. And we're so sick because this the collective is sick. And I'd love to see the health and wellness industry expand to include um, self-care to also include earth care and living being care, tree care, fungi care. I think it's a great point because I think a lot of the um, health, I'm, I'm generalising, but this is certainly something I'm seeing, health practitioners operating from a, a you know place of a good intention but really isolated. So it's about nutrition, which is great, or it's about physical fitness and exercise, but I th- which again is great, and the combination of both, but I think, the missing link and the glue that actually brings all that together is like go and do it outside in a, in a paddock or in a, in a park or connect, take your shoes off, go and ground, still eat good food, still exercise, but, you know, do it with a 
literally do it in the environment, do it in nature. You know, that's the kind of bit that brings it all together because that's the that's that's kind of the frequency we, we want to be operating at, isn't it? You know, we put our stuff in us, the food. We do our physical stuff, but, like, where are we doing it all? In freaking nature. Yeah. Nature is a funny concept. Um, in my studies now of Indigenous cultures and languages and in, in the learning of my own Indigenous language, Quechua, um, I'm learning that a lot of our Indigenous languages don't have a word for nature. And that is because... It, for us, it is not something external, <laughs> you know. And it's interesting that in English, we have this name for it. It kind of implies that it's over there. <laughs> Let's go out into nature. And that for Indigenous people is yeah, such a laugh because we are nature. We are an integral part of this ecosystem. And I was, I was telling you outside, Indigenous people have the, the accumulated knowledge of tens of thousands of years to teach us how we can reclaim our position as keystone species within the ecosystem to be a beneficial presence to all life around us, which is something that we're, we are not currently me included. What happened? I mean, I want to say... Were we ever a keystone species? Yes, yeah. yes. There, there are parts of the Amazon that they are now can prove were planted by... My ancestors <laughs> by man, by men, in women. <laughs> um, so in parts of the world, indigenous people have been building biodiversity here in Australia as well. Um, the indigenous Australians here have also been a part of building biodiversity of of shaping the natural landscape to make it better, to make the soil more fertile, being regenerative humans and. You know, and you've had many guests say this before, but this this new term of regenerative agriculture is great. But we we always have to acknowledge that these are these techniques are not new. They do come from the original peoples and stewards of the land. And so I think, and I want to qualify this by telling everybody that I'm not a farmer. Um, I've barely grown, like I've grown some herbs, I've grown some kale and some strawberries so far. Um, and I bow to Charlie and I bow to all the farmers out there. And so I definitely want to be humble and not sound like I'm telling anybody what to do. But in my studies of indigenous cultures and technologies, because these are technologies, I'm seeing, oh, wow, this is what they're teaching in my permaculture course. So then how can we integrate indigenous people back into the knowledge that originally is theirs? How can we make sure this just isn't another way to colonize their wisdom? And that's and so this is now a more integrative approach because if we really care about biodiversity on the land, then we need to care about the biodiversity of voices in this space. And I would go... Further and say we need to care about the biodiversity of the humans stewarding and owning the land because right now around the world land ownership land owners mostly just look like you Charlie not as handsome and not as charismatic Stop. but but mm. but but a white man yeah um, and that needs to look like brown men brown women mm -hmm. white women you know like that we need a biodiversity of land stewards and i like the word land stewards because the ownership thing is kind of like another introduced idea that has caused a lot of problems with the landscape 
you know, it's amazing that in their 100,000 years here, the indigenous Australians didn't put up one fence. No. <laughs> that would have been crazy to them. Because then they'd be like, well, how do we do the cultural burns then? Yeah. You know, like this is, we're talking about bioregions. You can't put fences through bioregions because each biome needs to be cared for so specifically, you know. And it also implies ownership, doesn't it? it well, the ownership thing is, well, why are you owning it to profit from it? Well, that's the world that we've built, but yeah, but things weren't always that way before we used to steward the land and the intention was not to make some money off it. It was to make sure that in seven generations that, that land would be flourishing even more. And it's just, you know, I teach this, um, I'm starting to teach this class on, um, on values because I feel like that's one of the only thing that I can speak on because I can't speak on the farming part just yet, but the indigenous values, um, and how, wow, how contrary they run to a lot of our, the, the values in our dominant culture, you know, like this, the seven generations thing. So a lot of it, um, First Nation tribes in, in, in North America, this was a big part of their culture and their belief systems. You don't make any decisions without, um, without seeing how it's going to affect seven generations into the future. Can you imagine if our governments made decisions Forget in that it. way? Can you, but, but, and, and we think that we're the smart ones. <laughs> Looking for more information to assist your regenerative journey? Come join Charlie and his guests around the kitchen table, an online community of supporters with exclusive access to the regenerative journey interview transcripts, live online Q&A sessions, a chance to engage with other like-minded people and more. Go to www.charliearnett.com.au forward slash the kitchen table and we look forward to sharing a yarn with you. Now let's get back to this week's episode. Their time frame is three years, which is three to four years, which is, which is the period of their um, election term. Election term, exactly. Um, <laughs> we went from seven generations to what's good for the next three years. Yeah, and of course, when you've only got one year left, it's just <laughs> that year, isn't it? Everything beyond that is I just mean, like who knows. That's what I mean about needing to create some systemic change mm. here. Um, another value that I love is Aini because this comes from Quechua. It's a Quechua word and it, 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 it's broadly translated as reciprocity. But, um, to dive in a little deeper, it means for you today, for me tomorrow. That implies you're giving before you receive. Now compare that to trickle down economics. Just, just, um, let me make a billion dollars. Let me cut all the corners and, and, and not follow any environmental regulations because trust me, when it trickles down, it's going to be good for everybody. <laughs> I mean, it's just the opposite. It's just the opposite. <laughs> and is that not what happened in Peru and, and in South America and Australia and everywhere that, you know, the, the farmers – that are now called subsistence farmers, were not, they were abundance farmers. They were regenerative farmers and, and they, as you said before, they were um, they'd been disenfranchised, displaced, um, you know. I mean, the mind boggles at how – I kind of know how it happens, and I, but, you know, how 
what, 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 who was, who did, not who did it. <laughs> who do like, we blame? Well, well, yeah, sort of blame, but like, no. how do we get to a point where that was not valued anymore? I know. Maybe and I, and I joked, question. I joked, like, who do we blame? Because when I first got stuck into it, I did feel a real anger. You know, when I saw how things used to be, and this is, look, I want to, I don't, I want to also acknowledge that um, there wasn't, it's, I'm not, I'm not describing a utopia here in, in, in these indigenous cultures. Obviously we're humans, you know, look, there was, some of us were eating, (laughs) we're cannibalizing each other in different parts of the Americas. There was a little bit of child (laughs) sacrifice, you know, the Incas were were into that, but in a a more humane way, (laughs) we were perfect. (laughs) But what we did have down was our relationship to the natural world and our, and our understanding of how to be a beneficial presence um, to the natural landscape and not taking more than what we needed and giving always giving back more to the land. You know, there were strict rules around harvesting. Um, there were strict rules around, um, you know, the use of water, especially here in, in Indigenous cultures in Australia. I was reading again in Dark Emu, just the management of the fish traps and the dams. And you, there had to be such a, a moral code to not take more than what you needed because the people downstream wouldn't have enough. And often, oftentimes you would never even meet those people downstream. But see, this is another va- Indigenous value. It's, it's, it's care and love for the unseen and the things that maybe you won't, the people and the living beings that maybe you can't see or ne- will never meet, but you know still have value and you need to protect. Now compare that to our value now of out of sight, out of mind which is how we really operate. I'll just dump my fertilizer over here because I'm not going to see it. So, all, my, all my rubbish. All my rubbish. Yeah. You know, let my runoff go into this 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 um, this water table because, you know, I'm not seeing it. And so Indigenous people have had a really um, – they had just – they understood the interconnectedness of all living beings. You can't do anything in secret over here and expect it not to have a ripple effect somewhere else. And so going back to – how I just want to move away. I never want to act like I'm I'm blaming or I'm better than. I'm actually not even 100% indigenous. My father was from Europe. I have both races inside of me. And I think it's a privilege to hold these two bloodlines and it's a privilege to be able to tell these different stories within me and in the hopes that they can help us write new stories in the future that include all of us as, as one living family in this web of life, finding a way to move forward in a way that benefits everyone involved. But there's one story I want to touch on because it really sums up a lot of like the a brief history of agriculture in Latin America in particular. So corn, which is one of the a, a, a food that is like a staple today all around the world. Corn started as a wild grass in the mountains of Oaxaca, Mexico. And um, tens of, I think, uh, yeah, about 10,000 years ago, indigenous people started to seed select this mm. wild grass. And over thousands of years, they created, they were manually modifying these seeds to create all these different species. And then it, it became a staple. It, it, it basically um, fueled their civilizations, 
the Olmec, the Maya, the Aztec. And eventually this knowledge of corn spread up towards North America and took off over there. It came down to Peru as well. And yeah, thousands of varieties of corn corn were in existence when Columbus, quote unquote, discovered the new world. Well, now we've lost about 96% of those species. Mm. And so what happened? So, you know, as 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 the settlers came, a lot of the times they saw the indigenous methods of farming as um, were basically just not profitable for them. They're like, what are you doing growing all these crops together? No, 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 no. Raise this because it's not going to make us any money. Cut all this down. You're going to grow c- coffee. You're going to grow cotton. Because someone gonna, over in another continent someone wants it. Someone over in another yeah. continent wants yeah. it. Yeah. And so this for me is a crime against humanity is severing us from this wisdom that took us tens of thousands of years to build up and cultivate. And then, and then in terms of the seeds, well, this is another whole rabbit hole, but you know, with this whole seed patterning Monsanto slash Bayer, what they're doing now in, in, in deliberately destroying the seed biodiversity of corn, they have basically erased tens of thousands of years of, of hard work. And so that, that sums up basically agriculture in Latin America. We worked really hard for a really long time to create biodiversity of seeds, fertility in our soil. And then when the settlers came over here, they had a different mindset. They replaced our, our values of Aini, et cetera, with profit and free market and, and, and now capitalism, you know, which is an extension of, of colonialism. And, and that was built on land grabbing, exploitation and extraction. And now we're screwed. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I guess the resources that that were available and the and the the, the plant selection that that, that that they those people did was about local, you know, using appropriate and you know seed that would grow in on that mountainside, and there's a different seed on that mountainside, exactly. a different aspect, and that was kind of it sustained and resilient, and resilient, absolutely, and that was the diversity was the was the key, and then. Um, so there was plant selection, but with a whole different criteria. Exactly. And then the modern plant criteria selection is just about yield and, well, at the end of the day, profit, but it's just yield. It's about tonnage. It's about simplicity, you know, monoculture. Let's just use the same gear right. on the same field with the same crop. And it's control because mm. they don't want you to propagate your own seeds because that's not profitable for them. So they sell you, you know, you have to go back and buy your seeds from them next year. We wouldn't want those farms to be sovereign kind of exactly peoples, would we? And so, we, but the problem is, is that when you just have this, and this is why the monocultures are so bad. And if if I'm at war against anything, it's monoculture in all, like in every way, you know, in society among people, seeds in our in, like this. The the seed example, this monoculture of corn, well, what happens when we're in a drought, you know, like we've lost now those seed varieties that the Hopi have stewarded over thousands of years that, that survive with almost no rain. Like, so we should be getting on our knees and thanking these communities instead of doing basically what Monsanto is doing and suing them and, 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 and basically contaminating crops. And I mean, it's, it's, it's full-scale war what's going on with the seeds. And sorry I, I go on such a tangent with no, them, but they really have cool. asked me to cool. – they're telling me, like, please speak up for me. <laughs> well, I mean, it's not dissimilar to 
if we can step sideways because it's parallel, I believe, you know, the medical world because, you know, that is in itself a monoculture of, of medicine as well, isn't it? You know, and when, and when one medicine doesn't work, there's always a raft of others, but they're similar and it doesn't, it, there's no consideration of, you know, whether it's a, we go down the track of, um, uh, you know, your own um, immune system and your your ability and your, your natural immunity or whether it's just um, keeping it simple with nutrition. You know, it's kind of... And as we know, pharmaceutical world and the, and the farming world, I mean, they're the same people, just, you know, creating a problem at one end and, and then, a, then creating a so-called solution at the <sighs> other. Let's make sick people... Exactly. With, with crap food, with with questionable farming practices, um, and sick people are. Oh, hang on, well, we won't talk about nutritious food. We'll just give you a pill to take. You know, that, that's it's a closed system, and they're mm. they're they've yeah, there's, there's evil geniuses, yeah, and and what about wiping out all our gut flora and creating monocultures? <laughs> yeah, creating yeah. monocultures in our gut. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's. It's all interconnected, and it's it's all being reflected. Our our illnesses and our um, our lack of diversity in our gut is a direct reflection of how we're treating the soil. So, what net what what could be, and this could be a very big answer. Um, what are some of the solutions? It's always a word I like using. Actually, what are some of the suggested approaches that you you might suggest to our listeners, you know, whether it's about health, whether it's about, um, I don't know, their their attitude to, I mean, fashion is a whole other thing, you know, how sustainable is it really? Are there people doing good things? You know, who should we be supporting in that world? Let's, let's start there maybe in the fashion world. Okay. So that was a big one for me because when the fires happened in Australia, which was the big catalyst for this awakening that I've, that I am still on mm. um, that that the fires were a visceral real example of how of the interconnectedness of everything and how human behavior is affecting the planet in a very destructive way and it caused me to really wake up and say I cannot live siloed and think that my actions from what I eat to what I wear don't have an effect. I may just be one person in billions, but I'm one person with a with a platform, some kind of a platform. So, you know, and even if I didn't have a platform, that kind of personal responsibility is responsible is, is very important. Um and and I hadn't been living up to my values, you know? I really hadn't been. And that was that was a really hard one for me to acknowledge. But I actually did it in a very public way because I had been such a <laughs> I had been such a like fashion influencer and like and uh, and because I was trying to heal my gut issues with um with that that I had from with my psoriasis, I was like really on the paleo bandwagon as well without talking about how important it is to make sure like where your beef is coming from. So I was this like real meat, burger eating, fashionista. And it was so, cool. it was so <laughs> out of touch with like, and some of my friends would call me on it too. Like, you know, like, oh, don't you know what cows are doing to the Amazon? And we'll go back to the cows later because they're, 
they're an animal that I have a lot of reverence and respect for, and I'm still very much learning how and when and 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 why and when not to, you know, employ them on the land because every country there's a different context. And where I'm from in the Amazon, that's a big it's a biggie that we're dealing yeah, with okay. there with the deforestation. It always comes up, understandably. But I'm from there, so mm. I, you know, have to really walk that walk. And I had friends being like, Are you really still promoting that? And so the fires were just like this massive wake up call for me. Like, okay, I've got to get my 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 personal accountability in check here, especially if I have this platform and I'm sending out messages. So then I went on a whole kind of like repentance tour, but in kind of like a funny way, just like acknowledging like, oh my God, I've been the biggest proponent of like trends and fashions, but now I'm just waking up to the fact that it's the second most polluting industry in the world. I saw some of these documentaries where I saw like River Blue for anybody who wants to watch, where you see literal rivers change colors and that and, and every season they're a different color, whatever color is trendy that year. And those waters and those toxins and those contaminants from the tanneries and for the from the textile factories are going out into the streams, contaminating all the water tables killing you know the the surrounding farmers killing that agricultural land ending up in our oceans ending up in our fish we're eating them i mean like this this cycle couldn't get more destructive mm. and and i was just so i went on this repentance tour and it was really fun and i went on a no new clothes diet for 12 months because i just had to kind of like really sever my addiction to to retail therapy. And you did this very publicly, like social Yeah, I did it. Yeah, yeah, I did it pretty publicly. I wrote a column about it. And I think it was interesting for people because it was such a 180. Mm. And and I was being honest about it. Did was, you get like told you so or you know, were people supportive or they I, say I was you know, it was pretty overwhelmingly supportive. Yeah, cool. And I did a video on who, what, where for anybody that wants to go out where I do like the usual like closet tour and you know I did some research to see like what are other people doing in their closet tours and you know it was just the like is that a show it's, Who, what, uh, it's a it's a website they have an Instagram and mm. it's like you know it's a very fas- oh, the fashionistas yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah who cool. what where yeah. and the fashionistas like to um like to go check on there and see what's cool, what's trendy, what are the celebrities wearing, what's in their closets. So all the other closet tours were like, and this is my room of shoes, and this is my room of Gucci handbags, (laughs) and this section is dedicated to my furs. And I was like, right, I'm doing the opposite. So I would pick up a piece of clothing and be like, this is made from, um, this is sadly polyester, which is actually made from fossil fuels. (laughs) And I will not be buying this and this textile new ever again. It's going in the bin. Yeah, well, I want to keep, you want to yeah. keep wearing what you have until you can't possibly yeah. wear it anymore. And those are the values now that I'm trying to embody. And cool. so I have to say that was really fun doing the 12, year, 12, 12 months of that. And for anybody listening, that's if you feel, I mean, I don't know how many like fat, fat fashion addicted people listen to your show, but. Deeps. <laughs> Farm fashion. Yes. These, they're probably like, what's she on about? I only shop at Vinnie's anyway. Um, and for those watching on YouTube, um, Nat's wearing her wattle Picking wild seeds, picking out <laughs> fish. This is what I imagine farmers wear. <laughs> um, shows how much what is that? What, did, what that? That um, uh, pa- sorry, excuse me. Gingham? Gingham. It is gingham. This is a it's friend's. Awesome. Um, this is a friend's Gingham small plug. batch made uh, company that I wanted to support. Who is it? Uh, it's, Give it a plug. 
Oh, and no, it's on. called Lasso, L-A-A-S-O. I've still got to convince her to switch to the regenerative cotton, though. I mm. gave her a good talk about conventional cotton. She's on board. Australia? Uh, no, she's based in Europe. Mm. But um, but anyway, so just for those people who might uh, might want to adopt these things yourself, it's if you can avoid buying new um, and supporting the the fashion industry, which is a which is a trillion dollar industry, which is built on the exploitation of people and the earth, then I suggest you you do avoid putting your money there. Um, otherwise, you know, like I also buy secondhand. I buy things that are made locally, but I will not support like major brands anymore. And I feel embarrassed yeah. that I used to fly and sit front row at fashion weeks now because, you know, a report just came out that the largest, um, the that Brazil's cut, like, now one of the major reasons of deforestation in the Amazon is leather for the fashion industry and that they, they could trace the supply chain to H&M, to Prada, to uh, uh, Louis Vuitton, to a bunch of these luxury brands and, and Adidas as well and normal brands, your shoes, you know, like this is having major, us, us living in this culture of retail therapy, crazy that we call this therapy um, because we're also anxious and depressed that it's not really working this yeah. therapy is pretty flawed but it's having a consequence you know and the amazon is at 17 percent tipping uh, uh deforestation rate and the tipping point is 24 25 not so far. we're not far off so is that new bag really worth it it's interesting you say about the leather too because in the last uh, i think i'm right in saying the last <clears throat> couple of years at least leather in australia has been it has been uh, – well, maybe there's been a reduction in – I'm not saying it's a good or bad thing. It's just interesting that a lot of leather hides have been buried because they have no value in Australia in the last couple of years. Can you believe that? And then but, – but the other side – on the other side of the world, it's – they're like, as you say, knocking down the rainforest to, you know, to produce uh, as a product, you know, leather. Isn't yeah, that crazy? It's- and it's like – Again, it's just mismanagement. Mm. It's not that the cows are inherently bad. If if the cows are farmed regeneratively and are and, and are of beneficial presence to the the land that they're on, then and if you're eating those cows, well, then of course it's uh, it's wise to make use of the leather. Sorry. But when we're when the supply is so great for leather and these companies are cheap, mm. they're cheap. They're making trillions of dollars, but they're cutting all these corners and they'd prefer to knock down some trees in the Amazon because they know they can get it for a cheap price. How much is a like a, know, a good, when I say good as in well-known brand, leather handbag? Like how much is, is, a, is one? I'm just curious because I know, you know, roughly how much leather might go into it. Sometimes you can go, get over up to $1,000, over and up to $1,000, mm. like $800 for a bag. Like... The, and how many how many are they selling and then you know what when they don't sell it they burn it because they don't want it to go on sale and lower the value, lower the value. That's i mean this is the sick world that we're living in and th- that word again value mm. that's what we value a mm. brand's image over a, a, an, an ecosystem it's interesting, isn't it? Because we have our personal values, which is, this is again a bit of a regenerative farming you know, context conversations. Like, you know, we the value we put on someone on something is based on our values, and as you said, your values clearly changed significantly a few years ago. So the value you put on a 
you know, someone's going to pay a thousand bucks. Like, are you serious? Why would I do that? Exactly. My values have changed. Now I value biodiversity and strong, healthy ecosystems over the latest trend. And I'm trying to do that while still remaining relevant to a young generation because I, I, I want, you know, like I want to be influential now because now my influence has a purpose. Totally. You know, how, how, again, getting sort of similar to the previous question, how, what, what do you, what, what can you see yourself doing? Projects, initiatives, you're already on the board of um, Fantastic Fungi, no, Fan- Fungi, Fungi Foundation, Fungi. sorry, yeah, and Soil Advocate with Kiss the Ground. What other things do you see you being able to do, influence an approach that you can take to, to make a difference? Well, right Apart now. Apart from like, not buying polyester shirts. <laughs> um, well, right now I feel honoured to be an advocate for in- Indigenous wisdom and um, low tech, which is yeah. uh, um, tech, T-E-K, so um, traditional ecological knowledge. Um, an ambassador for low tech wisdom and solutions for the many problems that we're facing um i there's a wonderful book you'll put in the show notes low tech by Mm. julia watson who's a beautiful australian um uh friend of mine actually and she would be an amazing guest on the show cool where's she based she's based in new york now but she's originally from queensland and this book is amazing because it really elevates traditional ecological knowledge in such a beautiful way. She goes around the world and profiles different communities and how they use their tech to solve a lot of their local problems and how these are these are technologies that we could uh, adapt, you know, for our own, that, that are inherently climate resilient um, for some of the problems that we might be facing, especially with um, sea levels rising, et cetera. So um, she was the one who really turned me on to that term and it changed my life because I saw myself in that. Mm. I was like, oh, there's the indigenous piece for me. This is what my ancestors want to, want to speak through me, you know? And, and I say this again, not because I feel particularly special or superior or, and I think one group of people is superior over the other. I think that was the kind of thinking that got us into this mess. What I want to create in, and my job as a storyteller is to envision new futures of partnership and collaboration where high tech and low tech work together to solve these problems. And um, I think that talking about regenerative agriculture, like I said, without putting Indigenous people, making them an integral part of the solution and Indigenous knowledge, I think is like this, <laughs> I'll use this metaphor, this oh, this analogy that I told you last time about the puzzle. Mm-hmm. My mom was doing this puzzle, uh, this 500-piece <laughs> puzzle of Machu Picchu. I was our, it was our Christmas holiday, like kind of um, activity. family activity. Mm-hmm. And my stepdad, Ross Cheeky Bugger, <laughs> stole a piece without anyone knowing. So that, And my mom was looking for this last piece for hours. And finally, after, finally at the end, he puts the piece in because he wanted to be the one to finish it. But it made me realize, like, wow, without that one piece, we couldn't say that the, that the puzzle was done. And so trying to put all the pieces of the regenerative agriculture um, uh, 
mission together and vision together like okay you've got the biodiversity you've got the um you've got the cover crops you know you you all these like mm. technical pieces without putting the piece of the indigenous knowledge the traditional ecological knowledge back in it's like you can't say that puzzle is complete it's sort of like the, it's the piece of the context isn't it like all those things in isolation okay even when those things are brought together like I don't know, permaculture and composting, they're kind of techniques, but it's like why are we doing it and how do we best integrate them and, and what is the, you know, the, one of the wonderful things about the Indigenous cultures around the world was their, their sense of reverence and, as you say, their interconnectedness with nature. So um, as farmers, we don't do much of that. And that's, well, enough, it, I don't it, think, you know. It, it, it is the spirit piece, you know, and... And it's the logical kind of left brain thinking that also caused a lot of the problems that we're seeing now. And it, because we valued that over the expense of the intuitive, dreaming, ecological information that Indigenous people have, because they've evolved, they've co-evolved with their with those specific biomes over tens of thousands of years. Not only do they have the the quote unquote information that is so interconnected and intertwined with their cosmology, with their spirituality, that they them and the land are one. There's no separation. And that's why, and I don't know what this looks like. I haven't even lived in Australia for the last 17 years. So I don't, I don't claim to have like the roadmap to this, but that is why, it, it, you know, we need to put our heads together and think about how can we create a new future in which we're, we can all co-steward this land together. Well, that was, I guess my question is, you know, how do we avoid the, 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 Caught the problem or the issue of appropriation or you know accused appropriation of wisdom, like we we know or, or some farmers know that it it really needs to be it's the missing link it's the missing part of the puzzle. We we know people who can help us. Um, we know we feel like we can incorporate it, but how do we avoid? being labelled as an appropriator of, of, of Indigenous IP oh, or easy. a stealer. Inclusion. Inclusion, yeah. yeah. Well, I guess that, that, is, yeah. that is a thing, but I guess, you know. Oh, equity, uh, sovereignty, uh, you know, just like include. How would you want to be treated mm. if this was your traditional information but you didn't have access to your lands? Like what, what would a fair relationship look like to you? You know, I think it's just coming back to that, like, there's been so much unfairness in the history of this country and in the history of other countries. How do we change that pattern so that we're not teaching our children the same values of, of like that it's okay for some people to have all the access and others to have none? And I'm not a communist. This isn't a, this isn't a communist <laughs> ideology I'm spewing here. And and I'm not a communist because it just doesn't work. It's an inefficient system. They tried it. Mm. It doesn't work. This is going to have to be a different kind of of tr just transition and transfer. Well, it's community, isn't it? It's community. It's, it's, it's like putting the putting the culture back into agriculture, and it's it's the yes. combination of of community in all levels. You know, bringing in the culture, bringing in the practice, 
access to to land, which we are stewarding. You know, I guess legally and officially we own it, but you know, as the years have gone on and we've created a, a relationship with Paul House, who I'm really sorry you won't get to meet um, this trip. Um, that you know, there is an opportunity to engage him and his people and many other people to facilitate because we have a resource. I mean, I'm, I'm using the word; it's probably not the right word. We have, we have the official access to this land, and we are at this time managing it. So, mm-hmm. to not share that and not have everyone involved benefit from that would, would, is 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 stupidity. I think. Yeah, um, it's just inefficient because mm. you know, the sooner we can integrate Indigenous people back onto their lands wherever they've been dispossessed. You'll see, and also reintegrate the knowledge where it has been lost. And in this country, it was lost um, intentionally. It was a systemized severance from ancestral knowledge, which is also, I think, such a crime. And we have to act now like these are endangered languages. These are endangered technologies, wisdom, songs, rituals, names, cultural practices. And we have to act the same way we do when it's an endangered rhino. You know, and this is what uh, my one of my favorite activists, Lila June Johnston, says. She says, if there are 10 giraffes left in the world, we don't say, oh, well, there's just 10 of them. It's not that many. Let's not care about them. Who cares? We all get together and say, we need to save these 10 giraffes. (laughs) That's what what we need to do about our indigenous cultures and languages and technologies. We need to say, oh, my gosh, guys, this will be a travesty if we lose this information. This is this is. To information that we all need now to to heal this problem that we're facing and 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 create solutions that can benefit us all. So let's get together and support the saving of these languages of this information. Let's get people back on country. And like I said, I have not lived in this country for 17 years, so I'm not an expert. There are amazing experts, people doing great things like the organizations Fire Sticks, helping yep. people, especially Indigenous youth, reconnect with the the practice of cultural burnings like that's that could be that's a that could be a money maker you could hire these wonderful so, indigenous youth to come and backburn on your property and help them connect with the land in that way also the um uh, children's ground is another great organization and they're um really cr- they're creating a country like on country based curriculum for indigenous youth so that we stop trying to fit the make them fit into our systems and we value their knowledge systems instead and so this this all this all this kind of cultural stuff is really important. Like you said, putting the culture back in agriculture, and we have to make sure it's not a monoculture. Totally, Diver- <laughs> a diverse culture. Yes. Um, I just want to jump to your. Can I just say what a what a what a um, refreshing conversation this is for many reasons. But one is that um, you're a you're not a farmer, and you are. <laughs> Um, you know, you have a you have a, a platform, and you have the opportunity to um, to tell stories. And there are many people, I'm sure, who follow you and, and support what you do. Um, and I know know of, and I know a few um, other females in the world who are not dissimilar, who have a big following and and, and have a big voice. And my sense is. A lot of them are steering away from 
the issues, or not the issues, the matter of, say, regenerative agriculture. In some circles, in many circles, in big circles, regenerative agriculture is still a bit taboo because mm. it involves cows. <laughs> yeah. But so, back to the I cows. Think, yeah, yeah, back to the cows. And I guess this was the genesis of our original sort mm. of connection. And, and it feels like that's taboo because that kind of, if, if, you know, a large portion of their followers are female, probably, and also, and male. But, but you know, there's my sense is because I sort of see who follows them and I kind of get their messaging that to say anything about positive about a cow would be like, man, you, you're going gonna, to you're gonna, you're gonna lose them. Mm. People don't want to hear that shit. They want to know, they want to be. To reinforce that cows are bad, and and that's a messaging kind of angle that I think. And I'm not saying that's a right way or a wrong way, but it, I, I guess getting back to that's refreshing conversation that you're really talking your truth, you know, from mm. from your own experience, you know, which is which is really refreshing. Well, look, I think I think we can approach this from many different ways. From just on a in a very practical level, looking around at this where I'm at, looking around at your beautiful farm, how how lush and 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 nourished and fertile it is. If you took the cows out of this ecosystem, it would not look this way. It go backwards exactly mm. because you need the in we say abono the fertilizer. Mm. And even when I ask my 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 abuelita, my grandmother about how they farm, we haven't talked about know, your amazing we'll grandma. We'll she's here. She's her. sitting down she's having. Here. She's my treasure. She's, awesome. she's my treasure. And now that I'm getting into all of this, I'm like, I can't believe I wasted all these years mm. not listening to her stories about the cows and the, her book, sheep. There's a, there's a film there, maybe. Totally. Oh, she's talked about her cows and her sheep her whole life. And I've just been like, yes, 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 yes. Okay. And now I've come back and I'm like, tell me all about the cows again. I'm going to record it. That's so cute. When you ask her about their forms of agriculture, she's like, well, the first thing we would do is we would get the abono, the fertilizer. Mm. I mean, this is just like the mainstay of agriculture. So if you're going to have the fertilizer and if there's a large population of the, of, of the world that, uh, that, are, are going to exist on meat, then can this be a mutually beneficial thing where we can bring a purpose and a dignity to the cows? I'm not here to comment on, you know, whether you like it's a personal choice to eat animals and it is a fact that we all need to reduce our animal consumption. Like it's unsustainable the levels that we're eating like my grandmother who I would consider is like the poster child for regenerative agriculture done in a traditional way when she was living in Peru they only ate meat like a few times a week if that and then the rest was just vegetables and fermented foods and she's what age 90 she's 98 and she's got all and she's got all her faculties she's yeah. super smart you know she's 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 her bi- microbiome is amazing mm. because she wasn't raised on all this factory farm cows right. that said and I, i've had a buddhist teacher say there's not enough grass in the world if everybody can if everybody wanted to eat just grass-fed beef we'd have to raise the amazon for the land so i'm of the middle ground here i'm like no more deforestation mm. for cows but they're already in the ecosystem and if they can be of benefit, then please use them in that way. But these are not industries we should be growing. If anything, we should be transitioning to see like what are other ways that we can live off the land? What are other animals, you know, other animals like the kangaroos. When when I read about how the, the, the um, indigenous Australians used to 
um, do the kangaroo runs and kind of guide them and and then yeah and then, yes mm-hmm. you know like for me if you're gonna eat an animal too you should be involved in some point in your life in 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 the process of of it's, killing yeah. them of, mm-hmm. you know i'll yep. just be blunt yep. if totally. you want you need to know what that is to to take a life and give gratitude in that way and because i don't really have the guts to do that um I've gone mostly vegetarian, but it's actually funny. I've been, I'm super anemic and I was even before I stopped eating meat, but, um, I was reading that biologically men have the capacity to be vegetarian because women biologically need, need blood because they lose it every month. And I thought, Oh God, that's not going to happen. Imagine us telling, listen, we've solved climate change, but (laughs) one of us, yeah, you guys are going to have to take one for the team here because biologically we can't give up meat. So can you do that? No more steaks. It's like, it's either the world ends, the world, our civilization, humanity ends on this planet or you get to keep eating meat, which, when do you want to choose? <laughs> I know which one I know to choose. Guys, I know Because we're only thinking three years ahead. That's right. <laughs> Not seven generations, exactly. which is a very indigenous thing, as you said, um, and something that, um, you know, us as farmers. I mean, I'm trying to think a couple of generations ahead. You know, I've got a, I've got three or four generations beyond that that we're trying to try and trying to think about, and I think a sustainable, not a sustainable, a regenerative. Um. Uh, Business is one that has to be thinking that far ahead, and 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 one that you can't think that far ahead without including the indigenous cultures. So, mm-hmm. and um, indigenous seeds, and 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 indigenous the wattle yeah. that we picked this afternoon. Yes. Yeah, which yeah, and some of these seeds, for example, the Murnong doesn't grow where there's been a lot of sheep and cattle because they need a specific kind of soil. Yeah, so that's why I'm like, okay, let's let's re- let's reform the cattle industry in Australia, but don't grow it because we actually need to shrink it so that we can start planting some of these natives, and 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 looking into native protein sources for those of us who want to eat meat, and meeting on. Uh, yeah, well, that's it. I mean, there's, there's, we have a lot of kangaroos here. Kangaroos. What about the bogong moth? Would you eat a bogong moth? I reckon if it was <laughs> like you know, prepped appropriately. Prepped, right? yeah. I reckon it would be so. I would love to go back and have a full Indigenous Australian meal, like. We should we should do that, you know, because I reckon there's enough. Well, well <laughs> if there's anybody who can still cook a bogong moth, please let me know. I reckon there would be maybe Paul. Maybe Paul knows because we, I mean, we call them bogongs because they're sort of famous, that whole, you know, the, the migratory route. And so big moths we just call bogongs. And I, I, they probably are. Um, but maybe that's, I mean, that's another conversation again and it's such a wonderful opportunity to, to with people like Paul House mm-hmm. to go, okay, I don't know how much Paul knows about that, but that's something if he doesn't, I'm sure he would love to look at. And if we can go, well, look, you know, if we can, if we can, if we can gather some people together, if we can utilize this space whether we're growing something or it's just a place where people gather and we bring in that sort of food we've got plenty of kangaroo um why wouldn't we do that you know like because we ha- we have often had traditional anglo feasts here with cow and sheep and pumpkin but to incorporate some of the um indigenous foods around here i mean it just makes so much so much sense. Thank you for the thank you for the prompt. Um, now I'm conscious of the time. You have to go to Sydney. What I'm going to do, and this is a bit of a plug for our Patreon members, who are our most loved people in the whole wide world. And if you want to be part of them, you just jump on our website and suss out what that membership is all about. We're going to do a really quick because I'm conscious of the time. You have to get back to Sydney. 
um, it's like a really quick little five question short yeah. sharp thing. Can yeah. we do that on the other thing? And yeah. this is the bait. If you want to hear Nat's quest- answers <laughs> to these questions, you have to go to the. And I'm going to act bit. them out so you can see the video. Because where do you put the video? Is the video just up on YouTube? It's going to be the role play. Interpretive dance. Um, it's going to go on YouTube. Well <laughs> okay, done. Cool. Um, we are. We've, we, we've sort of in the last season got cranked up on YouTube and we're doing awesome. a much better job of it too. Sorry, camera, that I haven't been so focused on you. But no, that's good. We amp it up. We. Um, last five questions. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to change my questions so you can actually act them out. Um, Nat, that's been wonderful. Thank I've really, as I said, it's been so refreshing. Um, and you clearly are not just, I mean, you're not a farmer, but in, in some ways, you know, that can be a really good, a real asset. That can be a really good thing. And, and your regenerative journey is a wonderful one. It's not over. And I love the fact that you said you intersected your um, social science and policy mm-hmm. and kind of then, the, the, then it was like, well, how do you then tell a story and what sort of story do I want? And now you've got so much content to tell, which is awesome. And I'm really looking forward to um, working with you in the future if we can and mm. hearing your stories and, and and sort of following the rest of your, your journey. Thank it's you, awesome. Talia. As I said, it was an absolute honour to be invited onto this show. Massive fan. And, yeah, thank you for having me. Nat, it's been a blast. And um, Patreon, you guys are next. Thanks, Nat. Bye. And on next week's episode of The Regenerative Journey, I speak with Terry McCosker. I flew up to sunny Yapoon to catch up with Terry uh, after trying to track him down for a couple of years. He's a very busy man and I was very grateful to have uh, captured him in his natural environment um, up there at Yapoon for a uh, wonderful um, interview with uh, Terry McCosker on The Regenerative Journey. This podcast is produced by Rhys Jones at Jaeger Media. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to subscribe, share, rate and review. For more episode information, please head over to www.charliearnett.com.au.